While the significance of race and class within the black liberation movement has been debated extensively, the issue of gender and the interplay of feminism and anti-racism are not adequately theorized outside the black feminist tradition. Black feminist or womanist thought, both implicit and explicit, contains a critique of racism, patriarchy, capitalism, and Eurocentrism. It also contains a powerful critique of patriarchal notions in black nationalism while often offering a corrective black feminist nationalism, or Afrocentrism, oriented not solely toward nation-building per se but toward reconceptualizing race, class, and gender as interlocking systems of oppression. The power of the theoretical formulations in black feminist thought, most powerfully articulated by Patricia Hill Collins, Barbara Smith, Angela Davis, Barbara Ransby, Frances Beale, Rose Brewer, Bell Hooks, Linda Burham and others, is that it transcends what might be called the counter-hegemonic ideology, like that of more traditional Afrocentrism, to create a form of knowledge that is not simply oppositional but involves dialogue between partial perspectives where there is no need to decenter the experience of others, except for the dominant group, which by definition must be decentered. In this dialogue everyone has a voice, but everyone must listen and respond to others in order to remain in the community. Collins argues that sharing a common cause fosters dialogue and encourages groups to transcend their differences. Rose Brewer, 2003, has sought explicitly to breach the disjunction between black radicalism's almost exclusive focus on the race-class dialectic by utilizing a gender critique. She knows that this will not be an easy task, because concern with race, white supremacy, and capitalist economic exploitation has been the driving force behind black radical theory and practice despite the more complicated social world that this movement sought to transform, a world with a variety of forms of domination, including those of gender and sexuality. Black radical theory, Brewer argues, has long operated on the basis of a generic notion of African-American life that renders the complexity and multiplicity of African-American life nearly invisible with regard to gender and sexuality. It is therefore of great significance that alongside the emergence of a black radical praxis concerned with race and class in the last few decades has been a black feminist critique, Brewer 2003-112. During slavery, black women were constructed as producers and reproducers, as laborers in the production of wealth, and as women in the reproduction of material and social life. Brewer follows Bonnie Thornton Dill, 1979, in asserting that these women resisted, defined themselves and were probably the first black feminists. They were certainly active in anti-slavery societies, which gave rise to the first wave of feminism in the United States. As Angela Davis, 1983, points out, however, the suffragette movement of the first wave of feminism ultimately foundered on the conflict between women's rights and African-American rights. Davis points out that this stance reflected long-standing structural and ideological contradictions in the United States so it should not be a surprise that the underlying racism of the movement spearheaded by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton continued during the second wave of feminism, in the 1960s and 1970s. In both cases for black women, the fight for African American rights took precedence over the fight for women's rights. While during the first wave of feminism, black women were ignored by the suffragettes, during the second wave of feminism, black women were faced with the choice of going forward in a women's movement that, once again, did not really include them, or supporting the rights of African Americans as a race without attending to the pressing gender issues that faced black women. Davis does not equivocate that she feels that this was a very difficult choice. She clearly elucidates the failure of both waves of feminism to include all women and shows how necessary it is for women, regardless of race, to work together.
Given the prominence of white racial chauvinism among white men and white women, both the civil rights movement and the black power movement fell back on the race-first outlook until the late 1960s and early 1970s, when black feminists began to stake out a voice among the women of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and among black lesbian feminists who came together in the Comahue River Collective as well as the National Black Feminist Organization, Brewer 2003-113-114. Barbara Ransby, 2000 notes the loss of several black feminist organizations over the course of the 1990s, including an organization that she founded with Deborah King and Elsa Barkley Brown, African American Women in Defense of Ourselves, which mobilized 1,600 women in response to the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas hearings, assembled a group of women who opposed the exclusionary policies of the Million Man March and the patriarchal outlook of its founder, and formed a black feminist caucus in the Black Radical Congress in 1998. There emerged in the Black Radical Congress a sometimes subterranean, sometimes open struggle about the status of feminist, gay, and lesbian themes in the Black Liberation Movement. The Black Radical Congress was a unique organization in the history of Black liberation and the prominence with which it dealt with the issues of feminism and sexuality. Anti-sexist and anti-homophobic stances were among the points of unity that all must support in order to participate in the organization. While the leadership of the Black Radical Congress often posed this as a contradiction between themselves and black nationalists in the organization, the issue was much more complex. Left-wing anti-feminism was widespread and by no means limited to black nationalists. I would like to situate the re-emergence of an explicit and dynamic black feminism during the last 40 years in relation not only to the dynamics of gender politics in the black liberation movement but also to the struggles in the larger society. The reassertion of patriarchy in the Emergence of Black Feminism The Black Pride movement of the 1960s got much of its impetus from the activity and praxis of the Black Muslim movement, which was organizationally anchored by the Nation of Islam. Much of the power of the Nation of Islam originated in the manner in which it linked traditional values to African-American religious practices and used this blend as a source of communal strength. Central to the practice of the Nation of Islam was its call for a return to the patriarchal tradition that had flourished among black people prior to their enslavement in the New World. Therefore, the Nation of Islam, and the black nationalist and black power movements more broadly, argued for the reassertion of the masculine power of black men who had been pervasively emasculated over a period of centuries in the discourse and practice of American society. The Black Pride movement thus took many of the masculinist themes of the Nation of Islam and enshrined them in their ideology. Ironically, one reaction to the assertion of Black Pride and resistance was the call for the reassertion of black manhood, famously enshrined in Daniel Patrick Moynihan's 1965 report The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, commonly called the Moynihan Report. There is more here than a simple ideological convergence, however. We need to understand the debate around the Moynihan Report and the Black Family in terms of the times in which this debate took place. Family Values and the Conservative Backlash The discourse on the underclass and family values so prominent since the 1980s emerged out of the 1960s debate about poverty and race, but the conservative turn in the debate cannot be understood outside of the impact of the black insurgency on the social psychology of rebellion throughout society. The conservative backlash, however, did not simply line up against the enemy of the moment. By its very nature it sought to reassert the foundation of the social order by highlighting the relations of honor that put the most dishonored section of the population back in its place. 
It is not difficult to discern that the ideological discourse of the conservative backlash was part of a broad counterinsurgency designed to turn the nation away from a commitment to the general welfare and toward a focus on the survival of the fittest, defined as those who had earned their social positions because of their adherence to the work ethic, their cultural and family values, and so on. It is key that we pay close attention to the evolution of relations of force in this historical moment. My point is that the rise of the most dishonored sections of our population in itself leads inexorably to the elaboration of a variety of counter-hegemonic discourses that constitute a fatal threat to centrist liberalism and the geoculture of the modern world system. We cannot understand the conservative backlash of the post-1965 period without understanding the meaning of the post-war period for the world in the United States. While the 19th century workers' movement contained elements who were implacable foes of a capitalist system that they believed would increasingly undermine the very foundations of social life as it ground workers beneath the wheel of a heartless profit-making juggernaut, others hoped that workers' social struggles would result in humanizing the capitalist system. During the 20th century social democratic movements springing from a variety of sources came to power throughout the countries of advanced capitalism, constituting a compromise that muted the ferocity of class warfare. Welfare states were established across Western Europe and in the settler colonies inhabited by the descendants of Western Europe. In the United States this welfare state took the form of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. However, the political strains in the New Deal coalition and continuing institutionalized racial disadvantage meant that the resultant policies made more substantial provisions for whites than for people of color. The social struggles mounted by people of color combined with the geopolitical strategy of the United States as it rose to a preeminent position in the world system, meant that the federal government could no longer ignore the grievances of an internal population of color that was relegated to second-class citizenship in a world in which decolonization resulted in the formation of many new states inhabited by people of color. If decolonization was the watchword of the emerging world order, the rise of the civil rights movement center stage in American society was a striking parallel for all the world to see. Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech at the 1963 March on Washington was a testament to the promise of the United States, but living out the true meaning of the United States creed meant the elaboration of democracy in ways heretofore unimagined. While the civil rights movement sprang from a political culture that had been nourished in the centrist liberal establishment of the civil rights movement, the more radical faction had gained a significant following in the urban areas outside of the South where civil rights were less of an issue and the more enduring problem was that of institutionalized or structural inequality and an ideological racism deeply embedded in the common sense of the nation. Malcolm X was the most popular leader of this movement, and he saw not an American dream but an American nightmare. Those segments of the population had initiated their own form of rebellion starting in the early 1960s on the margins of the civil rights movement and moved to the urban areas of the northern, midwestern, and western states from 1964 onward. This upped the ante in a most dramatic fashion and ignited a fire in establishment circles to find a solution to the problems of racism and poverty in the United States. The search for solutions led to social policy debate in the administration of Lyndon Baines Johnson about solutions to the problems of poverty, race, and class that greatly expanded the horizons of our thinking about democracy, equality, and social justice. The egalitarian spirit of the civil rights movement took the country by storm as women, Mexican Americans, Puerto Ricans, and gays and lesbians reasserted their own grievances. Decolonization fostered an egalitarian spirit in the non-European world as well, giving rise to national liberation movements in various parts of the semi-colonial and dependent nations of the Third World. Lyndon Johnson, 
a master politician and a populist who saw his mission in life as the completion of the Great American Revolution, tried to improvise in the international arena by seeking to implement the notion that America's mission was to deliver democracy to other parts of the world where it was under threat. This position was both half-hearted and opportunist. Moreover, it was not that creative an idea, since it followed the line of the Truman Doctrine. Johnson was not able to deliver both guns and butter and was driven from office. In the same year, King was assassinated as he moved closer to the politics of Malcolm X after King's assassination. His followers and those of Malcolm X made common cause in mounting a challenge to the multiple forms of inequality both in U.S. society and between rich countries and poor countries, which included opposition to U.S. domination of poor countries. Viewing this as a threat not only to the bipartisan consensus on foreign policy but also to the geopolitical and geocultural order on which their power rested, the power elite of U.S. society launched a counterattack against those demanding equality by calling for a colorblind society asserting that poverty was a consequence not of the structure of opportunity in society but of the lack of moral values among the poor, and launching military interventions in Nicaragua, Grenada, and Panama, all sites of a challenge to U.S. geopolitical domination of its backyard. While centrist liberals have hastened to blame the excesses of the 60s insurgency for the conservative backlash, they have tended not to understand the sense in which the post-war social compact was precisely a compromise that placed limits on who was included in this compact. It was these limitations that gave rise to the civil rights movement in the first place, an attempt to get the United States to live the true meaning of its greed. What this movement did on the whole, though, was to clarify for many the limits of the so-called American dream and for some the extent to which universalism versus racism and sexism constituted what Emanuel Wallerstein came to refer to as the ideological tensions of capitalism. Let us return to the 1960s and the line of argument presented by Moynihan in The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. Recall that by 1965 both the Civil Rights Bill and the Voting Rights Bill had become federal law. The Civil Rights Movement had defeated Jim Crow legalized segregation. According to the ideology of the civil rights movement and the white liberals with whom it was allied, the expectation was that black people would rapidly assimilate into white society on the basis of equality. The purpose of the Moynihan Report was precisely to refute any such expectation and to explain, from the point of view of the political and economic elite and the professional managerial strata, why this would be the case. Although full recognition of blacks finally had been won, the expectation by blacks that they would achieve equality of results would not be fulfilled because of the crumbling of the family structure. Moynihan attributes this to 300 years of almost unimaginable treatment, Moynihan 1967. For Moynihan the inability to assimilate the lower-class Negro was a social problem of monumental proportions to the United States because the integration of the lower-class Negro would finally complete the great unfinished American Revolution, Harding 1983-257. Levine 2003-16. It is important to understand that Moynihan locates the Negro Revolution in the same landscape as India's struggle against British colonialism, the decolonization of Africa, and the increasing tensions between the white world and people of color the world over. It is in this broader geopolitical arena that Moynihan worries about the political culture of lower-class Negroes, specifically the Black Muslim Doctrine, which was based on total alienation from the white world. He thus senses that the powerful influence of the black Muslim doctrine in Negro America might also indicate the possibility of an attraction to Chinese communism. He argues that the course of world events would be profoundly affected by the success or failure of the Negro Revolution in seeking peaceful assimilation of the races in the United States, Moynihan 1967-1.
Moynihan viewed the Negro Revolution as a movement for equality as well as liberty. Although liberty and equality are the twin ideals of American democracy, they are not the same thing. Liberty has been more popular among the American middle class, and equality has enjoyed tolerance rather than acceptance. Moynihan is referring to equality of opportunity, but he then takes up Bayard Rustin's argument for the achievement of equality of results. If we do not achieve equality of results, Moynihan argues, there will be no social peace, Moynihan 1967-2-3. Moynihan argues that at the heart of the deterioration of the fabric of Negro society is the deterioration of the family. For Moynihan the family is the basic social unit of American life and has been central in promoting the rapid progress of those immigrant groups that have been most successful in America. He tells us that the white family has achieved a high level of stability but that the family structure of lower-class Negroes is highly unstable and in many urban centers is approaching complete breakdown. He adduces the following propositions with statistical support to back up this claim. 1. Nearly a quarter of urban Negro marriages are dissolved compared to less than 8% of urban white marriages. 2. Nearly one-quarter of Negro births are illegitimate, compared to 3% of white births. 3. Almost one-fourth of Negro families are headed by females, compared to 9% of white families. 4. The breakdown of the Negro family has led to a startling increase in welfare dependency. He views this breakdown as a consequence of the particularity of slavery in the United States and of the continued oppression of the Negro, particularly the male both of which worked against the emergence of a strong father figure. Indeed, Moynihan argues that segregation and the submissiveness it exacts, is surely more destructive to the male than to the female personality. Keeping the Negro in his place can be translated as keeping the Negro male in his place, the female was not a threat to anyone, Moynihan 1967-16. He relies on the African-American sociologist E. Franklin Frazier to support his argument that at the time of emancipation, Negro women were already accustomed to playing the dominant role in family and marriage relations. Just as urbanization produced the wild Irish slums of the 19th century Northeast with their drunkenness, crime, corruption, discrimination, family disorganization, and juvenile delinquency, the sudden transition from country to city produced an analog in the Negro slums. Moynihan is critical of the lack of attention given to the social impact of unemployment for this is viewed as a central element in the weakness of the Negro family. Although Moynihan takes pains to note that it is a testament to the Negro people that they have survived the treatment accorded them in the United States, he points out that Negroes have paid a great price. The Negro community has been forced into a matriarchal structure, which, because it is so out of line with the rest of American society, seriously retards the progress of the group as a whole. He tells us that ours is a society that presumes male leadership in private and public affairs, and a subculture in which this is not the pattern is placed at a distinct disadvantage. This matriarchal society is what Moynihan deems the tangle of pathology. In contrast to the Negro family, the white family, despite many variants, remains a powerful agency, not only for transmitting property from one generation to the next but also for transmitting contacts in the world of education and work. Three centuries of injustice have brought about deep-seated structural distortions in the life of the Negro American. At this point, the present tangle of pathology is capable of perpetuating itself without assistance from the white world. The cycle can be broken only if these distortions are set right. A national effort must be directed towards the question of family structure, Moynihan 1967-47. We should recall that the Negro family was written during the most dramatic economic expansion in history. This expansion was the context of the social democratic strategy in the core states. 
During 1967-1973 the economy began to stagnate, and the ensuing profit squeeze was compounded by a geopolitical crisis in Vietnam and a crisis of governability because of the unruliness of the inner-city poor and their radical allies. In line with the changes going on at that time, Moynihan's position would shift. He edited a volume titled On Understanding Poverty, Perspectives from the Social Science in which he argued in his introduction, titled The Professors and the Poor that the fashionable poverty ideology promoted by intellectuals in the poverty program was a disservice to the poor. He had nothing but contempt for these white radicals who gained positions of authority in the Office of Economic Opportunity and who perpetrated the notion that the poor are in poverty because the power structure deprived them of opportunity. He quotes Miller to make his point. Opportunity is not something that people are either inside or outside of. Americans may achieve widely varying degrees of success or failure in a thousand different spheres and in a thousand different ways. Beaming the lower status people the message that one can attain success goals by breaching, demolishing or otherwise forcing the walls that bar them from opportunity conveys a tragically oversimplified and misleading impression of the conditions and circumstances of success, in addition to fostering an imagery with potentially destructive consequences. Moynihan 1968-32 this language is strikingly different from the language he used in the 1965 report. Moynihan argues that the function of many community action programs was to raise among poor persons the level of perceived and validated discontent with the social system, without actually improving the conditions of life of the poor in anything like a comparable degree. For Moynihan, to blame the system is not an analysis, but its opposite. In 1967 Moynihan delivered an address to the National Board of the Americans for Democratic Action titled The Politics of Stability. He attempted to understand the violence that the nation faced in the inner cities and in Vietnam as a consequence of liberal actions or caretaking. Liberals must see more clearly that their essential interest is in the stability of the social order, and given the present threats to that stability, they must seek out and make more effective alliances with political conservatives who share their interest and recognize that unyielding rigidity is just as great a threat to continuity of the social order as an anarchic desire for change. Liberals must divest themselves of the notion that the nation, and especially the cities of the nation can be run from agencies in Washington. Liberals must somehow overcome the curious condescension that takes the form of defending and explaining away anything, however outrageous, which Negroes, individually or collectively might do. Moynihan 1974, 188, 191 In the long trajectory of his political career, Moynihan started with an interest in transforming the black family through race, class, and gender-conscious programs that provided preferential and compensatory programs for black men. His longer-term objective was a patriarchal welfare state. He wanted to end the maternalist tradition in social welfare that enabled women to raise families without men. His early deliberations depicted the black family in a manner intended to gain pity for poor blacks, especially men, and thus promote the policies that he wished to pursue. Daryl Michael Scott argues that in February 1964, as the Johnson administration planned the war on poverty, Moynihan argued that welfare had made poverty more endurable instead of providing an escape from it. As the war on poverty progressed, Moynihan argued that welfare was a great achievement but must not be allowed to become the economic system of a permanent subculture. Men need jobs, families need fathers, communities need independence, Scott 1997-155. Moynihan argued that the war on poverty substituted the chimera of political empowerment, the citizen participation stipulations of the Office of Economic Opportunity, known as the Community Action Program, for the time-tested process of social mobility. 
Scott argues that he wanted the state to assist the poor in their quest for social mobility, not to forge them into a self-conscious and politically active group. The conflict between Moynihan's class-conscious liberals, who view the path of individual social mobility as the best road to social justice, and racial liberals would soon take a backseat to the conservative backlash, which emerged front and center after the Watts uprising. After Watts, the Wall Street Journal's headline read, Family life breakdown in Negro slums sows seeds of race violence, husbandless homes spawn young hoodlums, impeach reforms, sociologists say. The Wall Street Journal relied on academic authorities who were decidedly outside of the group of racial liberals who had been most active in social policy-making and deliberation in Johnson's Great Society programs. Thus, the conservatives claimed the Moynihan report as their own. William Ryan, author of Blaming the Victim, argued that Moynihan was no racist but that those who were upholding the report were engendering a new brand of racism in which white conservatives were pleading guilty to the savagery and oppression against the Negro that happened 100 years ago in order to escape being placed on trial for the crimes of today, Scott 1997-158. According to this new genteel racism, unemployment was a result of the breakdown of the black family, poor education was a result of cultural deprivation among Negroes, and slum conditions were the result of the lack of acculturation among southern Negro migrants to the urban north. The war on poverty, short-lived though it was, is often blamed for the conditions in today's inner cities. While it is true that the war on poverty did not really end poverty, it had a striking impact. The number of poor fell from 18% in 1960 to only 9% in 1972, Guadagno 1994 to 175. This was a consequence of a substantial expansion of social welfare programs including Social Security, Unemployment Compensation, Medicare, food stamps, and public assistance. Child poverty rates declined from 27% in 1960 to 15% in 1974. The percentage of blacks enrolled in college increased from 13% in 1965 to 22.6% by 1975. Quadigno argues that if this trend had continued, blacks would have established parity by 1983. Similarly, by 1989 the number of blacks holding white-collar jobs had increased by 522%. But poor blacks did not fare nearly so well. Between the early 1970s and the late 1980s the percentage of two-parent black families fell from 63.4 to 40.6 percent. The labor force participation rate of black high school dropouts fell by 25 percent. Jobless rates for black men rose from 4.7 to 13.6 percent, and the percentage of black children born out of wedlock increased from 35.1 percent to 62.6 percent. From 1970 to 1990 the rates of racial segregation, measured by the average level of racial concentration, remained basically the same. In 1970 the average was 84.5%, by 1990 it was slightly less, at 77.8%. Quadigno argues that segregation systematically builds deprivation into the residential structure of black communities and increases the susceptibility of the neighborhoods to spirals of decline. A harsh environment also is said to create an oppositional culture that further separates ghetto residents from the majority of society. When Reagan took office in 1981 he proceeded to roll back the welfare state. Funds for job training declined from more than $6 million in 1980 to less than $2.5 million in 1984. In 1981 federal aid to cities was reduced to 1968 levels. Support for low-income housing was reduced markedly from 183,000 starts in 1980 to 28,000 starts in 1985. 
1994-178. The position that elevates the role of the alleged lack of values among a racialized and gendered lower strata in the fomenting of social crisis seems to be called into question by some of the empirical research that I review above but social policy analysis is determined as much by the ideological commitments of the political establishment as by the empirical findings of policy analysts. In line with the 1970s declaration by Samuel Huntington about an excess of democracy that must be reined in, by the 1980s many of these neoconservative intellectuals had come full circle from their radical youth to embrace the hardline conservatism of the Reaganites. They sought to arrest the cascading demands for equality by the time-honored approach of blaming poverty on the vices of the poor. Thus, some advocates of the family values crusade argue that the absence of a biological father in the home has replaced race and class as the major cause of socioeconomic inequality and psychological disadvantage in America. Traditional conservatives, such as George Will, hold that what is called the race crisis is in reality a class problem arising from dysfunctional families and destructive behaviors. The conservative contention that blacks are lacking in family values does not square, however, with studies that show that traditional family ideology is as strong as or stronger among some blacks than among whites, and indeed is quite strong among low-income blacks as well. What, then, is the meaning of the attack on the black family? The defenders of historical capitalism have always blamed poverty on the poor rather than on the structural inequality that exists under the system. The attack on the black family is nothing new in this regard. At this point in history it is the centerpiece of the capitalist attack on equality in any form of egalitarianism. It is an attempt to justify and rationalize the structural inequality that is inherent to capitalism and is driving billions worldwide, and millions in the center of world capitalism itself, the United States, to the very margins of social life. Spiraling poverty would discredit the system save for finding an explanation that is ideologically acceptable to large numbers of its supporters. This is precisely the role that racism plays. It is manifested in the attack on the black family, the demonization of the underclass, read, dangerous class, and lately the incessant howl for law and order. What does all of this mean? We must first move away from the conjunctural time in which we have situated counterinsurgency against the increased bargaining power of the working classes that won the social democratic compromise, and the granting of civil rights concessions to racial minorities and women. This is certainly important to the most powerful social forces in the United States, but the rebellions of the inner city threatened to breach the social reforms used to contain the potential of the rebellion of the lower strata. In the long durée, these rebellions and the mobilizations with which they have been associated constituted a return of the dangerous classes, which frightened a section of the liberal elite into revising its liberalism and allying itself with conservatives against the radical thrust of the rebellion of the inner city poor and its allied intellectuals. The triumph of the right in the 1980s was part of a global reversal of these trends, but this was not a sign of strength requiring another retreat of the left. It should be no mystery that this movement aimed its fire at women, people of color, the underclass, and gays and lesbians. These are precisely the sites of greatest resistance and of those dreaming of a new society. Since this was also the period of the rise of women, it should not be surprising that black feminists have argued most forcefully for a strategy based on race, class, gender, and sexuality as interlocking forms of oppression. This contribution by Patricia Hill Collins, Angela Davis, Rose Brewer, and others deepens the contribution of black internationalism, which is an uncompromising break with the U.S.-centric perspective that the ruling class labored so hard to install across the political spectrum from the right to the social democratic left during the post-war period.
It was Malcolm X's insight that most effectively demolished the power of that consensus when he argued that the Negro problem was not simply an American problem or a black problem but an issue of the haves against the have-nots on a global scale, an issue not of civil rights but of human rights. The elegant refrain in Malcolm X's call to the ramparts is not unfamiliar to most who lived through that time and to youth who came to intellectual maturity while listening to Malcolm's speeches and reading his autobiography and collections of his speeches. Malcolm's insights frequently resonate with an idea at the far reaches of our consciousness that was not previously clear but after his commentary provokes insights in those listening. Where do they go from there? I have frequently encountered individuals who have argued that black radical activists and intellectuals once had important insights that the rest of society should contemplate but that their heyday is long past because they exhausted their contributions in the 1960s and 1970s. While there is indeed an invigorating wind blowing from the rise of the new black power scholarship that I mentioned in Chapter 1, since the 1970s the most intellectually cogent social thought and praxis in the African-American world has come from the ferment among black feminists. Black feminism is certainly not new, but I am less concerned here with indicating the depth and contribution of black women to the black liberation movement than with reviewing an example of recent black feminist interventions in the nation's intellectual and political arena. Patricia Hill Collins holds that a striking focus in both the Moynihan Report and the Bill Moyers documentary is their shared assumption that white economic advantage is due in large part to the superior attitudes and values of white Americans. One self-discipline, motivation, and perseverance are said to be the essential ingredients of economic success, and poverty is the result of a failure of individual or group will. The two pieces argue that the tangle of pathology is capable of perpetuating itself without any assistance from the white world. Political and economic factors are either neglected or located in the distant past by both works. Racial comparisons are used to explain the economically disadvantageous social class position of African Americans. Race and gender ideologies are thus, in Collins's view, used to justify social inequality. Gender is also central to this construction because it is the attitudes and values of black men and women that account for the differences in economic status and family structure of blacks and whites. Neither subscribes to the dominant notions of masculinity and femininity. Black women are overly masculine and pass on these ideas to their children. Black men are too submissive to women and absent from their children's gender socialization. To lift themselves out of poverty, blacks must learn to think and act like whites. To get back to the issue of intersectionality, race and gender converge in these treatments to explain the social class position of blacks. Racial difference is used to explain class disadvantage, and gender deviance is used to account for racial difference. In neither work is social class viewed as a causal variable that actively shapes the life chances of black people, their family life, or their attitudes and values. Collins, 1991-77, further argues that the image of the welfare mother provides ideological justifications for interlocking systems of gender, race, and class oppression. A network of controlling images converges at points defined by the conjunction of black and female, particularly in the context of poverty. Bill Moyers' well-known film The Vanishing Family, Crisis in Black America broadcast to the entire world his sense that the world of the black family is topsy-turvy, a world turned upside down. Despite Moyers' best intentions, his film ended up producing a very upside-down analysis. It is important. Perhaps poetic justice that black feminist thought emerges at this time to give all of us greater coherence. Collins on Racism, Nationalism, and Feminism Patricia Hill Collins argues that African American women as a group may have experiences that provide them with a unique angle of vision but that expressing a collective, 
self-defined, black feminist consciousness is problematic precisely because dominant groups have a vested interest in suppressing such thought. Those who control the schools, media, and other cultural institutions of society prevail in establishing their viewpoint as superior to those of others. Most of us are conscious of this social fact but do not always have the experience base to understand its manifestations in a wide variety of social and intellectual situations. While for Collins this consciousness resides potentially in the experiences of individual African American women, regarding their shared point of view, black feminist consciousness is in part a product of aggregating and articulating these individual expressions of consciousness, giving rise to a collective, focused group consciousness. This is not pedantic insistence on an intellectual position, in Collins's view. Black women's ability to forge these individual, unarticulated, yet potentially powerful expressions of everyday consciousness into an articulated, self-defined, collective standpoint is key to black women's survival, my emphasis. Collins argues that a fundamental feature of this struggle for a self-defined standpoint involves tapping sources of everyday, unarticulated consciousness that have traditionally been denigrated in white, male-controlled institutions. For black women, the struggle involves embracing a consciousness that is simultaneously Afrocentric and feminist, Collins 1990-26. In my view, Collins's understanding of black feminist thought is important precisely because of its emphasis on knowledge, consciousness, and empowerment. We know that there are a number of black women, not only women, who have achieved some prominence as intellectuals in the United States, but Collins cautions that. One danger facing African American women intellectuals working in these new locations concerns the potential isolation from the types of experiences that stimulate an Afrocentric feminist consciousness, lack of access to other black women and to a black women's community. Another is the pressure to separate thought from action, particularly political activism, that typically accompanies training in standard academic disciplines. In spite of these hazards, contemporary Afrocentric feminist thought represents the creative energy flowing between these two focal points of history and literature, an unresolved tension that both emerges from and informs the experiences of African American women. Collins 1990-31 While there is always a vindicationist undertone in the discussion of the work of intellectuals who come from communities that are composed mostly of oppressed strata and whose voices have not heretofore been recognized, we should simply accept this and move on rather than making it the issue. Having said that, I could not agree more with Collins's contention that the potential significance of black feminist thought as specialized thought goes far beyond demonstrating that African American women can be theorists. Like the black women's activist tradition from which it grows and which it seeks to foster, black feminist thought can create collective identity among African American women about the dimensions of a black women's standpoint. Through the process of rearticulation, Black women intellectuals offer African American women a different view of themselves and their world from that forwarded by the dominant group, Omi and Win at 1986-93. By taking the core themes of a black women's standpoint and infusing them with new meaning, black women intellectuals can stimulate a new consciousness that utilizes black women's everyday, taken-for-granted knowledge. Rather than raising consciousness, black feminist thought affirms and re-articulates a consciousness that already exists. More important, this re-articulated consciousness empowers African-American women and stimulates resistance. Collins 1990-31-32 It is important for us to see that black feminist thought is not an separatist endeavor but one that builds on the marginal position of black women so that they can use what Collins refers to as their outsider within stance as a position of strength to build effective coalitions and stimulate dialogue. 
such dialogue and principled coalition create possibilities for new versions of truth, Collins 1990-36. It is from this basic stance that we must assess the value of Patricia Hill Collins's new book, From Black Power to Hip-Hop, Racism, Nationalism, and Feminism. This is a fresh perspective that opens the analysis of social movements like nothing that I can recall since the work of Marx and Engels themselves in their historic manifesto of the Communist Party. Here Collins deals not only with the variety of racisms, but also with the changing forms of racism over social time. She contextualizes the evolution of racism in larger social contexts but also the evolution of nationalisms, both that of the larger society and that of subordinate strata such as people of African descent. What she adds to this mix is a study of family and its role in the conception of the nation. This is one location where issues of gender equity are most obvious, but it also provides a context for extending the analysis of gender equity into the arena of the larger society. Her efforts to elaborate visions of feminist nationalism are not entirely new, but in the context of the black liberation movement, they shift the center of the discussion of the movement in dramatic and unprecedented ways. Black feminism came to the fore in the 1970s and 1980s but was unable to sustain its radical potential in the face of the new racism. There is all too little attention given to the nature of the black liberation movement after the decline of the black power movement in the 1970s, though. While my last book, We Are Not What We Seem, Bush 1999, takes pains to avoid the narrative of decline that infects some other works and points to the vague possibilities in the hip-hop generation. There is much more talk about structure there than about agency. Robin D.G. Kelly's Kickin' Reality, Kickin' Ballistics, 1996a, points to the future, but in general he provides an elegant scaffolding for further analysis. Todd Boyd, 2002, and Bakari Kitwana, 2002, have recently made names for themselves as intellectuals who speak from the perspective of the hip-hop generation, without engaging the full power of the legacy that they seek to overthrow narrowly described as the civil rights generation. Collins's treatment is immensely rich and powerful in its potential. She tells us how the expressions of U.S. nationalism are affected by race, gender, and class. Her focus on nationalism and feminism is important but has not been afforded adequate treatment among leftist intellectuals. Most leftists tend to view nationalism as a backwards, essentialist ideology. At best they are tolerant of the nationalism of the oppressed, but sometimes only barely. Collins views nationalism as a powerful set of ideas that can be used for a variety of purposes. Its power lies, she argues, in its ability to annex expressive needs to political ends. The cultural wars of the 1980s and 1990s should not be simply dismissed as political gimmicks, for they are really about the meaning of American national identity and the significance of America. Collins points out that notions of family are central to widely held notions of the meaning of American national identity. The right's use of family values to define their notion of American national identity has been extremely effective. Rather than denying the sincerity of the right's profession of the importance of family values in their own lives, the left should seek to draw some lessons from this political practice. There may indeed be an element of truth in the manner in which the right uses family values as a political weapon. The left critique of the very notion of family values, Collins argues, is seriously out of focus. She points out that American politicians, academics, and ordinary citizens draw on family ideology to construct ideas about American national identity and citizenship. Understandably, Western feminists have tended to view the family much more as a site of women's oppression, since it consigns women to a domestic space, whereas male authority not only dominates the family but reigns supreme in the outside world.
which James Brown reminds us is a man's world, a world, however, that would be nothing without the soothing and loving support of a woman or a girl. Listen to his song on that theme, written during the height of the Black Power period, when he was also singing about being black and proud. Families play an important role in social reproduction and in socializing the young. The family is thus crucial in conceptualizing the nation. Collins argues that nationalism draws meaning from Western conceptions of family and race. Feminist analysis of gender and nationalism has been very helpful in the rethinking of ideas about the concepts of nation, nationalism, and national identity. In contrast to what one might have thought about nationalism as a patriarchal notion, Collins argues for a more sophisticated concept that views nationalism as deeply gendered but has women playing very specific roles, reproducing the population in their role as mothers, keeping and transmitting the traditional culture, and symbolizing the nation to be protected. Patriotism, of course, is the purview of men, who use violence to protect their women, their families, and the nation. Collins notes the relationship of segregation to the predominance of black nationalist themes among African Americans, a fact that many black intellectuals have missed. One of the problems central to this intellectual dilemma is the implications of practice for black solidarity. Does black solidarity require a lockstep approach to strategy, or should strategy develop out of public debate and contention? Black feminists, black lesbian, bisexual, gay, and transgender people, biracial people, and multiracial people have often been encouraged to subordinate their interests to that of the larger group. However, Collins sees as worrisome those who would suppress all group-based social action on the basis of enhancing the opportunities of individuals. The temptation to subordinate the voices of some in the interests of a broader constituency should always provoke questioning. This is not to say that coordination is not needed in organizations or coalitions, but at the broad social level this practice has to be suspect. This kind of reasoning is not only reflective of vanguardism in all of its problematic and dogmatic forms, it is emblematic of false universalism, which is far more problematic than dogmatism. Collins quotes Gobina Mercer, who argues that solidarity does not mean that everyone thinks the same way. People need to be able to disagree over issues of fundamental importance precisely because they care about constructing common ground. While mainly defending black nationalism and black ethnic politics, Collins also examines the paradigmatic weaknesses of black nationalism and Afrocentrism. The forms of black cultural nationalism expressed through the Afrocentric movements that emerged in the 1980s and 1990s in the black studies departments at white universities created an imagined culture that was different from the efforts of intellectuals such as Franz Fanon and Amilcar Cabral in the 1950s and 1960s, who were inspired by actual and not imagined national liberation struggles. These intellectuals viewed culture as dynamic and changing, as a complex network of social practices that determined positions of domination, equality, and subordination. The attempt to cull from selected African societies a set of values and norms that could be useful to a new nationalist project, however, tended to be more fundamentally connected to Western metaphysical dualism, which Michelle Wallace argues is the underpinning of racism and sexist domination, Collins 2006-103. Afrocentric emphasis on culture displaced to a distant and safe past, the argument that psychological freedom must precede political freedom, and the emphasis on the need for self-esteem and role models are all seen as problematic in Collins's view, Collins 2006-105. The focus of Afrocentric scholars has been an insistence that the main problem for black people is internal. The problems are cultural, behavioral, and psychological rather than political, economic, or structural. 
An even more fundamental critique of black cultural nationalism focuses on its patriarchal insistence that black women play the proscribed roles of mothers and cultural bearers, making it profoundly gendered. Despite these criticisms, Collins views Afrocentrism as a manifestation of the love ethic that Cornell West, 1991, calls for as the center of a politics of conversion. In a climate of institutionalized racism that valorizes whiteness, Afrocentrism offers a love ethic directed toward black people, thus reaching out to ordinary black men and women in a manner that is not available to the best academic anti-racist, feminist, Marxist, or postmodern social theories. Collins holds that while sociology provides knowledge and postmodernism stresses tools of critique, Afrocentrism offers hope. Collins 2006-119-120 Collins argues for a resource mobilization approach to power relations rather than a powerist domination approach. The latter holds that power relations are negotiated in a zero-sum setting where the dispossessed plead their case to those in power and if successful are granted concessions. If the powerful refuse to hear grievances, this could result in rebellion or revolution. In the resource mobilization approach, power struggles occur in the micropolitics of everyday life, the challenge of everyday norms, and so on. Black women's political activity is complicated by the necessity to grapple with intersecting systems of oppression. Insisting on fidelity to the complexity of social reality rather than acting upon a reified notion of social reality means that black women are positioned between often competing politics of nationalism and feminism. Thus, Black women have united with black men around race and class issues, employment, education, health, and education, but have often separated from them around issues of domestic violence, sexual violence, and homophobia. Since black women's community work has been the arena in which they have elaborated their political understandings, they have had a stronger commitment to social justice grounded in fighting for the rights of an oppressed community than has the more individualist-oriented Western feminist movement. This does not mean that black women should eschew feminism, however. Indeed, Collins calls for black women's political activism to be more, not less feminist. Black women often wind up sacrificing their needs as women to their central role in black community work. Collins points out that black women who were involved in the Student Nonviolent Coordination Committee during the Civil Rights Movement experienced a growth in feminist consciousness as a result of the organization's gender politics, as we saw in Chapter 1. This tendency that emerged out of black women's community work should continue. Black women should continue to insist, and more aggressively insist, on placing issues of gender more squarely at the center of the African-American freedom struggle, where neither race nor gender can gain primacy without harming political efficacy. Collins argues that a clear implication of the social dynamic that leads to the increasing incarceration of black men and the increase in female-headed households is the need for gender to be at the center of black political agendas. This should require that black men place fighting against gender inequities at the center of their political activity. In the hip-hop generation, black women's political stance includes an insistence on a personal, unique, individual identity unencumbered by someone else's standards. These women have been most conscious of the manner in which the idea of black solidarity at all costs promotes a paradigm of individual sacrifice that borders on exploitation. Colin cites Joan Morgan who in responding to questions about her commitment to black feminism argued, Since my sexual preference could not be of any relevance to you, what you really want to know is how I feel about brothers. It's simple. I love black men like I love no other. And I am not talking about sex or aesthetics, I'm talking about loving ill enough to be down for the drama, stomping anything that threatens your existence.
now only a fool loves that hard without asking the same in return. So yeah, I demand that black men fight sexism with the same passion that they battle racism. I want you to annihilate anything that endangers sisters' welfare, including violence against women, because my survival walks hand in hand with yours. Quoted in Collins 2006-149. Collins holds that if one accepts the subtlety of black feminist methodology then anti-racist, group-based political struggles should respect individual rights and human rights, should be based on a global analysis, and should be informed by the best of feminism and nationalism and not their most troubling elements. The failure of many African-American women and girls to engage in personal advocacy on their own behalf, according to Collins, stems from the absence of sustained debate of feminist ideas in African-American communities. The continued segregation of African-American communities means that the majority of African-American women and girls lack access to the types of educational experiences that give them access to feminism. Their work and family responsibilities make it very difficult for them to engage in grassroots political activism of any sort, especially multiracial feminist coalitions. Thus, prevailing black nationalist traditions persist among black women and men, including those with explicitly sexist themes. Taken by themselves, Western feminist and black nationalist perspectives hold partial perspectives on black women's community work generally and on black feminist nationalism or black nationalist feminism in particular. Rather than viewing feminism as primarily a criticism of nationalism and vice versa, feminism and nationalism may reinforce each other, Collins 2006-151-152. When it comes to black women's political resistance, where you stand, what you can see from that vantage point, and what you may stand for matters greatly. Versions of the political put forward by any group can offer only a partial perspective on definitions of feminism, nationalism, or any form of black women's politics. No matter how significant any view may be, elevating one version of women's political activism over other forms and declaring it the best or most authentic approach redefines a partial perspective as a universal truth, Collins 2006-160. Collins finishes with Anna Julia Cooper's refrain, when and where black girls enter into freedom, there, too, will others also find hope for the future. Collins 2006-26. If indeed the success of social transformation requires that we create a new common sense, then such a project is not possible if we do not recognize the central role of women.